Greetings, all you 99 percenters. This is your host, Dr. Jack Rasmus. This is Alternative Visions. Well, uh, we're going to start off the show today talking about uh, the railroad settlement. Railroad strike, the threatened railroad strike, and the settlement that was uh, finally announced today. What was behind all of this? Uh, you know, the uh, class gloves have come off. The anti-working class gloves of uh, Congress, including Democrats, including Mr. Walk the Walk, Never, and Talk the Talk, Always, Joe Biden. Uh, so we're going to start the show off uh, talking about the railroad strike. Then I want to talk about the, uh, the latest uh, jobs numbers once again and what they really reflect. Uh, and from there, we'll, we'll segue uh, into two other events here the past week. Uh, one is this uh, meeting between uh, Biden and French President uh, Macron. Uh and all the talk about an imminent trade war between the U.S. and the EU and why Europe is pissed off with the U.S. and what's going on there. Uh, and what does that have to do with the U.S. Uh, trade war against China, tech trade war, which is going on? And then if we have time, a few comments about uh, uh, Federal Reserve Chairman Powell's press conference this past week and what that represents. Okay, so this is a... Uh, a real full. <laughs> well, we may even say something about the price caps. Uh, gee, that that uh, came down here in Europe today. A full, you know, a full boat of uh, topics here of import to talk about. Okay, so let's jump into it. Let's talk about the the railroad settlement. Well, Congress can sure move fast when it's anti-labor, isn't it? Yeah. Well, they uh, voted today. Uh, the Senate did on uh, the vote yesterday passing the House uh, to prevent uh, the railroad workers from striking. Yeah, they put a kibosh on uh, the uh, legality of the workers striking here. And there was anti-strike legislation. You cannot strike. Uh, the House voted on that yesterday. And then the separate bill, the House uh, passed a provision to provide seven paid sick leave days for the workers, uh, which was an issue, key issue in bargaining here between uh, the railroad unions and uh, the railroad companies. Uh, so the House passed both bills. Uh, but as I predicted yesterday on Twitter, uh, the Senate would pass the first and shoot down the second. And reportedly, I understand the second got shot down. The Senate would not agree to give the workers seven paid leave days, sick leave days. Uh, well, let's try to understand what this is all about, other than its anti-class nature. Right. Well, first thing you got to understand that this tactic of breaking out uh, the two bills uh, is reminiscent of what happened this time last year when uh, Pelosi and Biden maneuvered to shoot down their own Build Back Better bill, right? And uh, screw uh, Sanders <laughs> once again and the so-called uh, squad of progressives in the House who've gone into hiding ever since. Uh, so. By breaking it out, they ensured uh, that uh, 
it would not be passed in the Senate. The seven-day sick leave would not be passed in the Senate. If they had included that in the original bill, uh, then those who wanted to stop the strike uh, would have had to approve seven paid sick leave days. But by breaking it out, they get to choose both, you see. Uh, typical uh, legislative tactic there uh, that the, the Democrats have used. Yeah. You know, Joe Biden, he says, you know, I'm the most pro-union uh, president, uh, blah, blah, blah. You know, he, last Labor Day, he really laid it on thick, you know. Uh, but when it comes uh, push to shove, uh, no. You know, it was immediately seven basic leave days here involved. They couldn't agree to that. Why? Well, because when the administration... Uh, issued its report, recommendation, in September, the PEB report. You know, that was a committee uh, under the Railway Labor Act that the president sets up uh, when he wants a cooling-off period. You see, the Railway Labor Act was created in 1926 with the purpose of preventing railroad strikes. And it's been quite successful, Nineteen times Congress has intervened to prevent a strike by the railroads. Nineteen times. This is the 19th. There's a long history of the government intervening to prevent railroad strikes. It's, railroads are very strategic. Bring the economy to a halt. Workers could exercise their de facto tremendous economic power. You know, so you can't let them do it, according to the capitalists, and that's just exactly what they're doing. Right. Railway Labor Act 1926 said there's got to be a cooling-off period. The parties cannot come to an agreement. They did not come to an agreement this past summer. So Congress, Biden, invo- invoked the Railway Labor Act that said, okay, uh, you've got to have a cooling-off period. And during the cooling-off period, uh, the government got involved, mediation to see if they can get the parties to come to an agreement. Of course, they never do in this situation. So they issued a report, they, meaning the PEB board, the Biden board, issued a report in September, a recommendation uh, of what the settlement should be. And in that recommendation, what came out from the board was, oh, one personal leave day. Not as paid sick leave day, a personal leave day in addition to what's been negotiated. And all that's really been negotiated in that contract between uh, the unions and uh, and management are, are some uh, retroactive uh, wage increases and uh, going forward some wage increases, which, by the way, I will show is far less than inflation. Uh, so all they did, the labor board, the PEB board, was to say, oh, you get one extra day. <laughs> you know, it's not even a paid sick leave day. Right. So... Uh, Objectively, uh, you know, directly in that report, uh, the Biden board uh, said that uh, we do not agree that the workers should get any paid sick leave days. You know, the workers originally asked for 15 because they don't have any. And uh, then they uh, hoped that they would get maybe half of that. Well, the Biden board said no, nix, none, nine, yeah. Nothing. Nada. <laughs> no, basically, no, 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 no. Do you think once the government intervenes 
essentially on the side of the corporations and says no paid sick leave days, that the railroad corporations are ever going to agree to any paid sick leave days? No. The Biden administration essentially in September froze up negotiations, came down on the side of the companies and made sure that there would be no compromise by simply issuing that report that recommended no paid sick leave days. According to the Railroad, Railroad Labor Act, the Railway Labor Act in 1926, the parties then go back and negotiate, right, for 90 days after September, see if they can come to an agreement. Well, there's no incentive for the railroad companies to agree to paid sick leave or anything else once the government said this is what we approve because behind that approval by the government, but their September report is the possibility if the parties don't agree to it under the act, the government can uh, pass anti-labor legislation to prevent anti-strike, you know, to prevent the strike and the companies knew it. They were in the catbird seat after that September report that said no paid sick leave. And they knew it. So they didn't agree to anything over the last 90 days. And the workers came down from 15 days to seven days in their negotiations. Some of the 12 unions accepted what it was. But the four big unions did not. If the four walked out, all the others would uh, uh, effectively go on strike, too, honoring the picket line. So, uh, you know, what we got was uh, intervention on behalf of the corporations, by the Biden administration in that report in September. Now, it's interesting that Biden yesterday in a press conference with French President Macron, you know, he answered some questions and some questions, uh, you know, from reporters came up and one was, uh, you know, the railroad strike. And Biden had the gall to say that he negotiated the settlement in September and that the workers got a 45% wage increase. Both, of course, are false. Absolutely. I mean, is this guy so slow or dense that he doesn't even know what's in that report? Right? Certainly he didn't get it. I mean, even the media is saying the five-year agreement which is retroactive three years. You see, the workers haven't got a raise in three years. The five-year agreement goes from 2020 to 2025, January 1st, uh, provided only 24% increase. So, you know, that's, what, five years? A little under 5%, like four and three-quarters percent or something, on average, for every year. You know, last year, inflation was, uh, uh, you know, almost 10%. And this coming year, it's going to be pretty high, too, maybe 6 or 7 8%. And before that, you know, we had two other years of inflation. Who knows what the fifth year is going to be? Uh, well, you know, I estimate that the inflation over the, that five-year period of the agreement is going to be about 40%. So the workers got about 24% of 40% real wage increase. But Biden says they got 45%. Well, no one anywhere, the media, anybody has used that 45%. And then he said he negotiated the deal. But, you know, also yesterday he was asked, 
he knew that this was going to be shut down in the Senate because he said that, uh, quote, we're going to go back and get paid leave for all workers. Well, that kind of suggests he knew <laughs> he couldn't get it for the railroad workers or wouldn't, uh, that he's going to go back and get it for, well, hell, if you can't even agree to uh, seven days for railroad workers, am I going to believe you? You're going to get it for everybody, paid leave? And this is the only country that has no paid leave, essentially, even for union workers, unless they can negotiate it, you know, let alone the rest. All these other countries have have paid sick leave and, uh, you know, four to six weeks paid vacation and 20-plus uh, days of paid holidays, if you look at other advanced, uh, uh, you know, economies in Europe and uh, North Asia. You know, they've got all these benefits. Um, in Germany, if uh, you get maternity leave for almost two years, maternity leave, two years. If you're unemployed, you get a full year and then another year of unemployment benefits and free training. Yeah. We're the only country that really screws our workers. Man, you know, you, it's almost like indentured servitude here in, in the labor market in the U.S., yeah, well, anyway, you know, it kind of irked me and listened to this guy yesterday saying 45% increase, and I negotiated the deal. Yeah. I mean, what is, you know, is this guy so so out of it? Is he so demented that he doesn't even know the facts? He makes them up as he goes? Uh, I don't know. I mean, this is, and, and then today, uh, you know, they're putting a the spin on it that he prevented the strike and saved the economy, right? That's the, the spin. Uh, so, you know, what did the workers actually get in this agreement, if you look at it, right? As I said, they got one paid personal leave day. Mm -hmm. uh, they got three annual um, attendance before they were being doctor attendance, even when they went to the doctor, right? And they're not going to be disciplined anymore for hospital visits, repeat, right? Uh, oh, they got hearing. Hearing aid benefits were raised from $600 to $2,000 a year, right? But their health insurance is going up $100 a month. Yeah, right now they're already paying, uh, uh, what, $319 a month? Uh, that's going to go to $398 over the term of the agreement. So even that 24% wage increase, nominal wage increase, is going to be effectively reduced in take-home pay because uh, they're going to have to pay $100 a month. Uh, their cost-sharing, in other words, is going up from 12.6% of what the company pays for medical to 15%, right? And that's effective right now, January 1st, 23. Yeah. Effective immediately. Uh, oh, well, they're going to give the, the workers some big bonuses, here, lump sum payments. Well, that's because they owe them three years of retroactive pay. That's what the bonus is going to be. You see, another issue of contention in the railroad uh, uh, is uh, scheduling. Scheduling. Not just scheduling for uh, sick leave, because that's an issue. They had no sick leave pay. They had to take their vacation pay a day at a time or the vacation time, a day at a time, in order to, to go to the doctors. Uh, and the other leave, you know, uh, you know, they had to get permission 
uh, it's very strict. The railroad uh, contracts are very strict uh, uh, in terms of allowing leave. So you may have leave on the books, vacation or personal leave or whatever, but they won't let you take it. you got to get approval to take it. Well, why are they uh, corporate management? You know, why why are they uh, uh, so um, so uncooperative un- uh, in providing uh, uh, time off, uh, legitimate time off? Uh, you know, when you're sick or ill or vacation or whatever. Well, it's because there you have thirty percent fewer workers in railroad. Yeah, what happened? Uh, you know, with COVID, is that all these people got laid off? A lot of them because nothing was being shipped, because people weren't buying stuff, right? So a lot of it, uh, a lot of them got laid off, and they didn't bring them back. Well, why would they not hire people back? Oh, because they figure they can work with a leaner workforce. They don't need all these people, right? Just bring the back people back and work them harder, who do uh, get recalled back. And, of course, that, uh, provide, that, that brings with it supply chain problems. Uh, but they don't care because their profit margins are up because their wage costs are down because they haven't brought everybody back. So they're working with 30% fewer people in occupations in the railroads, which means uh, they, they can't afford to give people time off. Right? So a lot of the provisions in the agreement uh, that were to be negotiated uh, uh, had to do with giving workers uh, you know, more rights in terms of uh, of scheduling and, and approval of time off without being disciplined, right? Workers before were just taking the time off because they were sick, uh, but they were given uh, demerits and uh, being disciplined for it, for taking legitimate time off that was provided for in their contract. Well, you see how that ties in with the paid sick leave issue, right? Management doesn't want to give them paid sick leave because if they do, uh, well, you've got a bigger Scheduling problem, time off scheduling problem. But ultimately, that scheduling problem goes back to the corporations and COVID and not hiring and bringing people back. You see, and a lot of industries are running that way. Uh, uh, During COVID, they they got a lot of uh, uh, money here from the government to keep people employed. Well, they kept the money and they, they... Laid them off anyway. Airlines did that. Airlines got fifty-two billion dollars from the government to keep people employed. They took the money and they laid people off, and then they couldn't bring them all back over the summer and didn't have enough people. And you saw all the scheduling problems in the airlines, right? Well, the same thing happening in the railroads. Same thing. You know. So uh, you know, there's big bonuses, uh, but most of it's retroactive. If you look at uh, that twenty-four percent nominal wage increase uh, in the first year of the agreement in July of 20, 3% raise, 21, 3.5% raise, this year, a 7% raise, okay? So, uh, you know, that's like uh, 14%, 14% retroactive that they're getting. Retroactive. Oh, that's a big sum of money. Right. Well, you know, that's a big lure to the workers, you know, who have been squeezed and and haven't gotten a raise in three years to take the money and run. Uh, That's why, you know, eight of the 12 unions, uh, the weaker ones, uh, agree to it, take the money and run. Uh, But uh, the four big unions, uh, you know, they're trying to address this uh, scheduling leave 
paid sick leave issue. <clears throat> and uh, they ran right into the government, uh, siding with the corporations here. Uh, next July, uh, workers were, would get a 4% increase. So in other words, 14% back pay for three years and uh, not even covering inflation. Uh, and then going forward in July, only 4%. Now, who thinks inflation this year is going to be only 4%? No way. Right? Uh, they're going to continue to go back in real, in, in backwards in terms of real pay. Uh, and then uh, in the last year agreement in July of 24, 4.5%. Uh, okay, so 24%, most of that back pay, uh, all of that less than inflation. So in terms of real wage, they're going to go back. And uh, by the government intervening, the government pretty much froze all the negotiations about scheduling and paid sick leave and so forth, right? And this is the 19th time, 19th time uh, that the government has uh, intervened. You know, when I said the PEB board pretty much squashed all paid sick leave here, uh, here's a quote from the PEB's report, 100-page report or so. Quote, we are simply not in agreement that the sick leave proposal is warranted or appropriate. Page 86 of the board. Yeah. As I said, do you think with that uh, freebie from the government, uh, from Biden administration and the board, that the corporations would then negotiate sick, paid sick leave day? days? No way. They just froze up. Right, and uh, nothing happened. So you know, the government essentially intervened, stopped negotiations back in September, and then of course uh, we get to uh, you know approaching the end of the ninety-day cooling off period since so September, and the possibility workers may actually go on strike here, uh, and uh, quickly, uh, quickly, uh, Pelosi uh, throws. Uh, anti-strike, stop-the-strike legislation, uh, and uh, then they break out the paid sick leave, you know. They suckered them, uh, suckered uh, Sanders and suckered the squad and the progressives of the Democratic Party once again, once again, outmaneuver them, uh, break up those two votes, pass the first one, and shoot down the second one, second one being the paid sick leave. You know, that's how it's done. Well, well, you know, the strike possibility is over. Uh, what's going to happen now is uh, the railway union leaders are really between a rock and a hard place. You know, do they uh, agree to uh, have their workers walk off uh, and then the strike is illegal and then they face with the Patco workers that uh, uh, you know, happened to them back in the uh, Regan days, right? Uh, the union gets uh, uh, unions that... that walk off anyway, despite the congressional legislation violating the law. Uh, they get sued uh, for every penny. Uh, the government maybe even takes over those unions. You know, that's the prospect. Uh, and then the AFL-CIO unions are in the background saying to the railway unions, oh, you can't do this. You'll set a precedent of no strike here that'll affect all of us, right? Well, I'll tell you, fellas, <laughs> there's been no strike in the railroad industry uh, for a century. 19, 19 interventions that have gone on. So there's no de facto right to strike in railroads. They took it away. 
you know, and uh, you know, watch the longshore, West Coast longshore workers who are also transport, you know, uh, in negotiations right now, uh, sitting back, not agreeing uh, uh, to a settlement, watching what happens here. Uh, certainly going to impact theirs negotiations as well, right? Will longshore workers take on the issue? Will the railroad workers, uh, you know, were successfully uh, outmaneuvered? No. I don't think so. And then next year, oh, another transport union, the key strike uh, negotiations next year are the UPS uh, trucking and the Teamsters, right? Well, they'll face the same thing. Look, there's been, uh, since 1947, there's, there's been a, a movement after movement in Congress and these parties uh, to limit the right to strike uh, in all but the smaller, uh, you know, contracts and bargaining units and so forth. These big strategic uh, uh, bargaining units, you know, in transport and industry, uh, you know, no right to strike. The capitalists don't, don't approve of it. Uh, which, and, and, and the Democrats, you know, they play this game, all oh, friends of labor, but when it comes, to, comes down to when the rubber meets the road, what do they do? Well, they do what good capitalist representatives always do. They come down, take off the gloves, and the velvet gloves become a metal fist uh, against uh, unions and workers. Uh, so this, uh, this event is over, defect- effectively. I I, uh, I predict that uh, you know the union leaders will now say, look, you know we in railroad uh, will say, look, you know we we if we walk out on strike, this this and this is going to happen. They're going to you know uh, fine us, sue us, force us back to work, fire you, maybe you know they'll paint a terrible picture, and uh, the workers will will get uh, discouraged, and they'll say, oh, well, let's take the money and run. Uh, same thing, right? And they'll be stuck for five more years, and their real wages will go back, and management will continue to uh, uh, put the screws to them in terms of <coughs> working conditions. All right? And they'll make up money uh, for this uh, uh, paltry settlement in wage terms in other ways. You know, one, of course, was uh, already uh, raising their contributions to medical care, uh, but they'll, you know, They'll save money by not hiring people back or, or getting rid of conductors on trains and stuff like that. They'll, that's what they'll do. Uh, and uh, that's very classical capitalist uh, uh, labor management strategies and negotiations. You know, uh, I've seen it before uh, more than once at different levels of how this game is played, of how... Uh, uh, union leaders are, are put be behind a rock in a hard place, and the Democratic Party, uh, which takes their campaign contributions uh, when push comes to shove, is never there to help, uh, and is part of the problem. Right? Uh, but they'll keep throwing money at the Democrats, uh, and they'll keep uh, uh, getting crumbs or less uh, going forward. That's been the history for 40 years now, at least. Okay, so that's... Uh, that's my rant here on the railroad settlement. Um, very indicative of uh, what the situation is here in this country. You know, under neoliberalism, neoliberalism has two strategic goals, and that is to quash uh, domestic resistance, mostly the working class, and to uh, outmaneuver uh, capitalist competitors uh, on the global scale, right? Or to attack. Uh, 
other recalcitrant uh, uh, capitalist countries that won't play ball with the empire, a.k.a. Russia or Venezuela or Cuba or whomever, right? Yeah, that's that's what neoliberalism is all about. It's a class-based strategy going forward. Okay, so um, what about uh, this uh, meeting I mentioned here uh, yesterday uh, between French President Emmanuel Macron and uh, Biden here, right? Big, uh, big media to do event here. Uh, why did uh, Macron come to the U.S.? Well, because the Europeans are pissed with the U.S. Uh, and uh, policies, programs that are coming out of the U.S. that are really putting the screws to Europe economically. You know, I could talk about, uh, as I have been in the past, you know, uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, sanctions policy, which is really about driving Russia out of Western Europe altogether so the U.S. can come in and take over not just the energy market there, uh, but other businesses and financial sectors and so forth now that Russia is out of the picture. So U.S. corporations, capitalists come in in a vacuum and they charge even more higher prices than the Russians did. We can see that with natural gas. You know, reportedly now it's coming out. Uh, the U.S. is uh, providing Europe with natural gas, but charging them three times more than the Russians were. Well, the Europeans are beginning to complain. You know, it leaks through in, uh, here or there in the mainstream media, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, whatever you see once in a while. Europeans are complaining. Well, they're complaining a lot. Um, because uh, it's pretty clear that the U.S. is uh, exploiting uh, the fact that Russia is being driven out uh, of the energy markets. And by the way, I would say that's other markets, uh, industries as well. The U.S. is going to uh, squeeze Europe. Uh, it's putting uh, Europe uh, under its control economically more than ever before and politically as well, uh, geopolitically. Uh, so, you know, uh, the French are representing uh, Europe here uh, in coming to the U.S. and complaining, uh, not just about the energy costs, you know, but complaining about the recent legislations that have been passed by the Biden administration providing subsidies uh, to U.S. corporations. You know, uh, there's really three acts here. The infrastructure bill passed uh and then the the chip uh, the semiconductor R and D bill that was passed, and the so-called inflation reduction misnamed bill uh, that was passed. All of these bills uh, subsidize U.S. investment. That's their primary purpose. Uh, and part of the subsidization uh, is to try to bring these businesses back on shore, particularly uh, U.S. businesses that have gone to Asia to lure them back on shore, provide them slush funds and bribes, tax cuts, subsidies, whatever, to get them, you know, whether it's semiconductor chip companies or other tech companies or auto companies or whatever, bring them back uh, to North America, right? Whether it's the U.S., Mexico, doesn't matter, Mexico, free trade agreements, same thing for U.S. capitalists. So bring them back here. Uh, why? Oh, because the U.S. is preparing to uh, go to the mat uh, with Russia and China, especially China, eventually. Uh, so uh, 
you know, wants to protect these key industries, these tech industries and other key industries. Uh, so, you know, these three acts, uh, which provide well over a trillion dollars, about a trillion and a half, I think, if you add them all up, are all designed to uh, lure American businesses back onshore. They are also designed to lure uh, European companies and others to you to the U.S. as well. And that's what the Europeans and the Crown are, are all upset about, because uh, the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIP Act, whatever, uh, is going to provide big incentives for European countries not to invest in Europe, but to invest in their U.S. subsidies, subsidiaries, rather, right? Especially auto companies, electric auto production. Uh, the U.S. Uh, in the Inflation Reduction Act is providing like $360 billion in incentives that have to do with investing uh, in uh, alternative energy sources, right? So uh, that means auto. That means auto and batteries and, uh, you know, all auto parts, especially batteries, auto assembly, tech companies, and so forth. And uh, Macron is right that uh, it's not only going to uh, – stop U.S. investment in Europe, it's going to reverse the flow of European investment uh, back to the U.S. to invest in electric cars and trucks and so forth, right? And uh, uh, they're upset about that, right? Uh, well, he came and, uh, you know, he says, you're, you're not treating Europe fairly, you know, because in that act, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is really an investment, Alternative Energy Investment Act, uh, the U.S. exempts countries that are part of free trade agreements with the U.S. In other words, Japan and South Korea are exempted. Right? Well, Europe, there's no free trade agreement. They're not exempted. Well, in the press conference yesterday, uh, uh, Biden was asked directly, and he said, oh, oh, you know, that was a mistake in our negotiating uh, Congress and, and, the, and the act in Congress, you know, inflation reduction, uh, exempting only free trade agreement partners. We really meant allies, you know. We don't want to, uh, uh, you know, as he threw a bone to Macron here that, oh, well, maybe we will add uh, allies uh, like France, to the whole picture here of exemptions uh, and protect you from uh, the, the, the direct subsidies and tax, big tax incentives that are provided to U.S. corporations in uh, you know, those industries, putting Europe at a big disadvantage when it's trying to keep its economy from falling too far in recession, which it is, especially Germany. Uh, Germany is now in, in recession. Uh, the latest the statistics this week uh, showed that. And today, I think, uh, uh, statistics on the decline in German exports, which is 45% in German GDP, uh, came out two times worse than they forecasted. So Germany is, is sinking fast, right? Uh and, uh, you know, Macron was representing Europe. And uh, Biden threw him a bone. Ah, but can he deliver? <laughs> Congress says we're not going to change the law. That's done. Yeah. So what you're going to see is uh, when uh, the lower-level negotiators <clears throat> get together next week, Europe, U.S., uh, you know, will the U.S. really make concessions to Europe? 
I don't think so. And Europe is going to continue to be pissed off here. Uh, you know, the U.S. is taking positions here, you know, on the sanctions and, and uh, you know, now on these these uh, incentive investment acts, you know, that are really uh, delivering body political body blows to the Europeans. Right? And then you got the U.S. Federal Reserve jacking up interest rates, right? And those interest rates going up uh, are causing uh, the European currencies, the pound and euro, to decline, to fall. And, uh, you know, when that happens... Uh, uh, the value of the investments as the currency uh, declines, the investment, the Europeans' investments, their value declines uh, accordingly, on paper at least. Right? So uh, the, the U.S. is hammering Europe pretty much uh, in you know, two or three major ways, and of course the rest of the world economy too. But you've got to understand this, uh, this incentive uh, to bring back uh, tech and semiconductors and autos and all this stuff uh, is really ultimately the U.S. trade war with China. With China, yes. Uh, this Europe-U.S. thing is a fallout of that. But the real purpose for passing those laws uh, is uh, really to deny China access to next-generation technology and the U.S. corporations uh, developing that, uh, bring them back. And by the way, lure other uh, Asian co companies as well to the U.S., you know, like the uh, Taiwan Semiconductor Company, big semi semiconductor company, plays a major role in Asia and in that market worldwide, uh, is uh, relocating its investments to the U.S. as well. The U.S. is pulling in its economic horns here, you know, in preparation for uh, stepping out politically uh, and militarily here over the remainder of this decade, I believe. Uh, okay, so so that's what's going on, um, you know, with the trade war. Trade war is really a U.S.-China tech trade war. Uh, that was started under uh, under Trump. You know, he launched the, the trade war with China, of which tech was the central element, uh, and he failed. He could not get the Chinese uh, to back off of their tech investments, uh, especially next-generation tech like uh, artificial intelligence, cybersecurity, you know, et cetera, which has military, uh, 5G military implications, right? Uh, that's really what the Trump tag, uh, trade war was about. Uh, but Trump uh, uh, threw in... Uh, uh, oh, U.S. agricultural goods will be part of the negotiations. And then the banks wanted 51% ownership in China of their operations, so that became a part of it. Uh, well, the bankers got what they wanted, but uh, uh, the Chinese did not buy more agricultural goods, and they, and they uh, snubbed the U.S. on any changes to their technology. So the Trump trade war failed. The tech trade war, which is, has military implications, failed. Under Trump, and this is Biden's answer to that. You know, instead of negotiating tariffs, using that as the, as the lever uh, that Trump did, uh, you know, the U.S. is just using quotas and uh, a blockade and so forth. They're getting tough about the trade war with China. Uh, you know, they're throwing China out of uh, uh, the markets in the U.S. and worldwide to the extent that they can. Uh, they're cutting off. Uh, all Chinese access uh, to uh, 
parts and so forth for its tech industry. They're trying now, of course, to get U.S. and other Asian countries to leave China and come back to the U.S. Uh, this is all a, a trade war which has military implications preparing for the U.S. to go after China uh, by 2030. Right? <clears throat> but first it's got to clear the deck uh, with Russia before it goes after China. Uh, and that's why we have this Ukraine war. <clears throat> which isn't going to be settled. Uh, I've talked about that other other shows, so I'm not going to go into that again. Okay, so uh, uh, that's the trade war going on. What about the job numbers today came out? Well, you know, it's more of the same. Uh, I think it's 263,000 jobs created. Uh, previous three months averaged 282,000. Uh, what's going on here? Why, why isn't the... Uh, Employment and labor market situation softening. This is what the, the capitalists and me are asking themselves. After the Fed has raised interest rates 75 points, what, four times now? Five times? Yeah. Well, it should have had an effect by now. Well, it certainly had an effect on the uh, construction industry, but it's not having any much of an effect on the labor markets in general, large corporations. They can't understand what's going on, you see. Uh, they keep thinking, well, you know, it's going to have an effect, and they wait on tenderhooks for uh, these uh, monthly labor reports, and, and they see these large numbers of jobs being created. Well, my view is, to some extent, uh, uh, this, that number uh, is misrepresenting the real condition of the labor market, which is softening. It doesn't appear so if you just look at that top-level number of, uh, quote, jobs created. Now, you got to understand that number uh, comes from relatively large corporations. There's two, two uh, labor department surveys, one called the Establishment Survey, where the large corporations uh, uh, provide the data on hiring to the labor department monthly. And then there's another... Uh, another survey called the Population Survey, uh, in which the Labor Department undertakes uh, uh, monthly uh, phone interviews of 60,000 smaller business, smaller. And uh, these two uh, uh, surveys are at odds. You know, the big corporations uh, aren't being affected uh, very much by the Fed raising interest rates. Yeah, it, the small companies are. And that's why you've got layoffs going on there. And uh, that picture is much weaker than the big picture. But the data for the jobs comes from the big corporations, right? Why aren't the big corporations really being affected? Because interest rates are not that critical for them anymore in the 21st century. They have all other kinds of ways, you know, bonds and issuing bonds and equity and all kinds of things to raise money. And they're, you know, fat with cash here uh, as well after the last 10 years. So they don't need, they don't need to go borrow money from banks to continue their businesses or grow their businesses if they want. Uh, that's the big change in the 21st century. You know, in 2016, I wrote a book called Central Bankers at the End of Their Ropes. And I predicted exactly what's going on now. And, you know, the essence of that prediction was that in the 21st century with globalization and financialization, you know, that the Fed raising interest rates has less and less a dampening effect on the real economy. 
the Fed has to really raise interest rates quite high. And 5% is not high enough, you see, to really bring down uh, the, the labor market. According to that thesis that, that, that I developed five years ago, it's true. Uh, but there's a contradiction here. If the Fed raises it more than 5 5.5%, it's going to precipitate financial instability and defaults. Again, because of the financialization of global capitalism. That financialization uh, makes it more likely uh, that you're going to have uh, instability financially as rates rise, uh, and it uh, makes it less likely uh, that raising rates is going to dampen uh, big businesses. Uh, and conversely is true as well. Conversely, you know, uh, conversely would mean uh, uh, that uh, uh, when you the Fed is trying to stimulate the economy by lowering interest rates. It doesn't have that much of an effect on the real economy again. It has more of an effect on the financial markets because most of that free money, low interest rates, flows not into the real economy but into the financial economy worldwide. So monetary policy is not as effective as it used to be, either in dampening inflation and or in stimulating the real economy and economic growth. Right? It's just not there anymore. Okay, so uh, that's part of the problem uh, that we have uh, going on. But getting back to the job numbers, you know, if you look at that 263,000, uh, as I said, uh, it comes from just large corporations, but it is distorted, I believe, by what's called the new business formations uh, numbers. Uh, well, what's that? Well, I've talked about that before, but it's worth repeating here. Uh, uh, wh what you get with that 260,000 is not actual data of jobs created. It is a statistic. A statistic is you take the data and you, you engage in some sort of uh, methodological manipulation of that data to get the statistic. So 260,000 is a statistic. But that statistic is not just the result of the raw data of jobs uh, provided by large corporations. It's also throwing into that pot uh, the number of jobs created by new businesses forming. You know, hundreds of thousands of businesses are formed every month in this, in this country. Hundreds of thousands uh, uh, disappear. The problem is uh, that that statistic of 263 uh, includes uh, numbers of, uh, of business formed six months ago. So six months ago, you had uh, the economy opening up here after COVID, uh, and you have more businesses being formed than, than falling, uh, falling under the bus, uh, you know, when you have a reopening of the economy. Um, so those numbers that, you know, were, were seasonally uh, large, Six, six to nine months ago, are added to the actual report in October uh, of the corporate, in November in this case, of uh, the big corporations of how many jobs. You, they throw them both together, then they engage in these statistical method, methodologies and manipulations to come up with the number 263. So in other words, what I'm saying is new business formation is distorting uh, to the upside uh, the number of uh, jobs actually being created. 
you know, if you go into deeper into uh, these Labor Department reports, uh, what you see is, oh, 263,000 jobs, according to the establishment survey last month. But then you look in the, in the other survey and, wow, there's 127,000 permanent jobs wiped out. So full-time permanent jobs are disappearing, but the number of the total jobs is quite high. Hmm. Something's wrong somewhere. Well, it may be that uh, businesses, to the extent they're hiring, are hiring more part-time, non-permanent type of workers as the economy begins to slip into a recession. They're being cautious. They're not hiring permanent people. They're hiring cheaper uh, part-time people and temp people, uh, not permanent people, uh, because it's... uh, less costly, and on top of that, you know, they can lay them off easier if it looks like the recession really falls, you know, uh, and, it, it, of course, it will early next year. Right? So that businesses' uh, hiring practices reflect that to some extent. Okay, so that's my analysis of the jobs number. It's really softer than it looks, right? uh, but big businesses are still hiring uh, because the Fed rate hikes uh, don't have that much effect on them. You know? uh, capitalism, the structure of capitalism has changed in the 21st century. You know, tech is more important. Uh, financial uh, uh, markets are more important. It's more global, trade flows, etc. cetera. Uh, and these statistical methods were developed by Labor Department before the 21st century here. And I think they're not really picking up uh, all the actual uh, facts of what's going on in the labor market. It's weaker than they're saying, uh, but it's still uh, quite strong given the fact that, uh, you know, the Fed has raised interest rates as much as they had. Well, what the Fed's going to do now is it's uh, going to raise two more times, I predict, and then it's going to sit back and see what the effect is early next year. We've got another raise uh, in uh, December here. might only be 50 basis points, uh, and then we'll have another one in, in January, February. And then the Fed uh, uh, late winter is going to sit down, sit back, and see what happens with inflation. Uh, and as I've said, uh, you know, my analysis of inflation is uh, it's mostly supply side, uh, not demand side. And the Fed can do nothing about supply side forces driving prices. Nothing. Right? Uh, it can... Uh, uh, dampen the hell out of demand side by laying people off and moderating wage increases and wage income and spending. Uh, so uh, that's where its action is. That's what the raising interest rates do. Uh, but it has less effect over that, as I said. Right? And that is maybe 40% of the inflation. So I see inflation uh, moderating over the next six months, but not coming down below 4%. They're not going to get to that 2% unless we have a deep, deep recession, right? Uh, So, you know, that's been my analysis of inflation, supply-side driven, for a number of reasons I'm not going to get to, but including sanctions and the war. uh, And, uh, uh, you know, those supply uh, forces are going to continue uh, keeping inflation relatively high. And we can very well be in a real... Uh, demand uh, uh, crash 
here uh, and take about half out of the inflation rate and uh, a lot of unemployment at the same time. Uh, Well, we'll see what happens. Uh, But it's really about the problems uh, that we have uh, with uh, monetary policy uh, not being as effective as it used to be because capitalism has changed. The tools, uh, fiscal monetary policy, are not as effective, you know, and they occur with a big lag anyway. Uh, It was interesting to listen to Powell's press conference here on November 30th, you know, did he uh, really address this question of inflation? Uh, he danced around it, you know, in the, the power waltz, I call it, right? Uh, what did he talk about? Uh, well, he said, oh, I'm going to focus on core, core PCE, you know, personal consumption and expenditure, right? I'm going to focus on the core. Well, what's the core as opposed to the headline inflation? Well, core uh, does excludes uh, energy and food. So he was focusing on uh, uh, services and goods uh, in in just the core uh, and talking about that. And I was ignoring where the real problem is, and that's on uh, food and energy on the supply side. Well, because it's on the supply side, he doesn't want to deal with it. And a lot of the food inflation is because of price gouging by monopolistic corporations. And so is the energy problem with the, you know, oil companies, natural gas companies, price gouging. So, you know, by ignoring uh, food and energy inflation, he's kind of saying, well, I can't do anything about that. Well, let's talk about what I think I can do something about. And that's the core sectors, right? And in the core sectors, uh, uh, he kind of focused on uh, uh, housing services, i.e. rent, rent running very hot here. Rent inflation, right? Uh, uh, goods inflation, uh, some problems still there because of supply chains. Well, that's because of sanctions, right? Um, but rent inflation, of course, housing prices we know went up, but they're going to come down pretty fast here uh, because the housing is in a in a deep recession now already. Uh, core services uh, of rent, of which rent is one. Uh, that he talked about. Okay, so he's dancing around it, uh, the real issue. Uh, because if he really focused on the real issue, he'd have to criticize the, the Biden sanctions and the war and uh, disruption of global supply chains that are going on. Right? The Biden administration obviously uh, wants to, uh, well, has uh, driven uh, uh, Russian energy out of Europe. Uh, Russia has turned and it's uh, shipping even more energy elsewhere uh, in uh, Asia. You know, uh, Russian oil shipments are uh, higher than they were before the uh, the war began. Of course, they've discounted it. That's right, to some extent. They've discounted the price. The global price of oil is about $80 a barrel. Uh, the Russians are discounting it about 20 25%. That means they're really selling it about $60 a barrel. And here come the Europeans saying, oh, we want to put a price cap at $60 a barrel. (laughs) You know, in other words, the rest of the world, uh, you can't buy Russian oil uh, uh, for more than Russia is selling its oil. $60, right? That's an exercise in arrogant futility here, all this price cap stuff, you know. 
Uh, and what happens with uh, the the price of uh, global price of oil as the global uh, recession deepens here uh, and it comes down even more, right? Well, they're going to have to lower that to keep it uh, uh, at least parallel with Russia, Russian Russia's price. Uh, it's crazy. It's a sanctions nonsense here. I don't think it has to do with sanctions so much as trying to keep all the Europeans from competing with each other and buying the oil on the, on the sly. You know, everyone's got to, you know, stand firm on that we're not going to buy any Russian oil here. Uh, but if, uh, you know, the U.S. and the Europeans are serious about price cap, it means they're going to have to impose secondary sanctions on the rest of the world if they buy Russian oil above uh, their artificial price cap of $60 a barrel. Yeah, they're going to have to sanction India for buying Russian oil, right, more than $60 a barrel. Look, if OPEC could not control the global market price of oil by trying to manipulate supply, the Europeans and U.S. are not going to be able to fix the global price by manipulating demand either. It's, you, you can't do it. Right. But it looks like they're doing something about Russian sanctions because the rest of the sanctions aren't working very well, uh, at least where energy flow is concerned. OK, well, that's my story here today about the railroad strike and the jobs number and Powell and uh, all the rest of the nonsense in the world. OK, I'm out of here. This is Guns and Butter.